Well, good morning. It's great to be with you today. If you would take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John. And I guess that's where you guys are going next. So if that's a surprise and I ruined it, sorry about that. I'm in John chapter 2, the last part of the chapter. So whoever preaches this passage can come out. Maybe that's going to be you, Marshall. You can clean up my mistakes when you get here. John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. Today we're going to look at the omniscience of the Son of God. And just for context, I think it would be good to begin reading in verse 13 all the way down to verse 25. But our focus today will be verses 23 through 25. So if you would follow along as I read. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It took 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. But Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them. For he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. May God add blessing to the reading of his word. On October 19, 1999, John Carpenter of Hamden, Connecticut, became the first person to win $1 million on the game show Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Remember that show? Sally and I were living in California at the time. I was in seminary, and I remember seeing this live and watching in absolute amazement. I was in seminary, but this was a Friday night, and I didn't do a lot of homework on Friday nights. Trying to remember back, I think we were house-sitting, which became a a great thing for us when we lived in California. It gave a little extra money and watched a dog or two. And uh, so we were watching this, and it uh, it was a great time together. John Carpenter made it to the final question without using any of his lifelines. And then got the final question from the show's host, Regis Philbin. And the question was, which of these U.S. presidents appeared on the television series Laugh-In? The choices were Lyndon Johnson, Richard Nixon, Jimmy Carter, and Gerald Ford. Well, Carpenter appeared as if he did not know the answer to this question and told Regis that he would like to use one of his lifelines, that he wanted to call his parents and talk to his father. 
And so they got him on the phone, AT&T. And what John did next was both absolutely stunning and incredibly brilliant. John told his father hello and then said, I don't really need your help. I just wanted to let you know that I'm going to win the million dollars. <laughs> because Richard Nixon is the U.S. president that appeared on Laugh-In, and that is my final answer. Well, he was right, and he won a million dollars. John Carpenter is a really smart man. At, at the time of the show's taping, he was working for the IRS. Brilliant, super intelligent, but not omniscient. But today, we have the opportunity to observe the, observe the life of Jesus, the Son of God, who was omniscient, who knew all things, who was even able to discern counterfeit faith from true, genuine, saving faith. And so we're going to look at these three verses this morning, verses 23 through 25. Let's look again at verse 23. It says, now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast... So Jesus made the journey to Jerusalem. We read there in verse 13 that he went up to Jerusalem. And no matter where you were traveling from, many of you know this, that you were always going up to Jerusalem because it's an elevated city. We got to, Sally and I got to go to, to Israel in 2020. We came back on March 5th before the world shut down. And I remember after being in Galilee for several days, finally getting to go to Jerusalem. And we, we came in by night and we were going up to Jerusalem. And all those things kind of came together. So Jesus made the journey to Jerusalem as he had done every year since the time he was 12 years old, as the law required him to do. And here we see that though Jesus was angry in the temple, there's no doubt about that. Jesus was angry and made a scourge of cords and drove those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers out of the temple and poured out the money of the money changers and overturned their tables, we see Jesus was a man who was in complete control. And we know that because the Jewish authorities did not report Jesus to the Romans. No Roman soldiers came to question him or arrest him. And those who were in the temple that day knew what they were doing was wrong. Jesus did not have to make an escape. He did not have to slip through the crowd. The Jews did not take him to the edge of a cliff to throw him down, nor did they pick up stones to throw at him, as we will see them do later in this gospel. Jesus stayed in Jerusalem, and while he was there, he performed signs or wonders or miracles. And look at what it says here in verse 23. Many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. The Apostle John, in, in this great gospel that I love so much, and I'm thrilled you're going to be able to study it, includes eight different signs in the gospel of John, eight different miracles. Earlier in this chapter, we see first, the first miracle that John contains when Jesus is in Cana of Galilee and turns the water into wine. He obviously did more than eight miracles. And when you read through the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you see many, many more. And now John tells us that he did other signs while he was in Jerusalem, while he was at the feast 
or the Passover. John tells us in his gospel that Jesus did other signs that were not recorded in this book. In John chapter 20, verse 30, John says, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. John 21, 25, John says, And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. I call this sanctified exaggeration. Okay? And John is able to do that because the Holy Spirit is inspiring to write him the right to, to write this book. Well, Jesus had sanctified rage in the temple. It was a holy anger because of what was going on. And so John is writing this gospel to show or to prove that Jesus is the Son of God. And Jesus proves himself to be the Son of God when he performs these great signs and wonders and miracles. And because of these signs, because of these miracles, John tells us here that many believed in his name. If you remember the the miracle in Cana when Jesus turns the water into wine, it was a noteworthy miracle. It was instantaneous, it was unexplainable, and it was undeniable. Those are the characteristics of the miracles of Jesus. Again, they were instantaneous, they were unexplainable, and they were undeniable. I would encourage you to contrast that to the counterfeit miracles that we see today from so-called faith healers. Nothing like this. Yet when we read of this account at Cana, when Jesus does this first public miracle and turns the water into wine and everyone knows this is the very best wine, we don't read there of anyone believing in him or following him because of this sign. But not here in Jerusalem. Jesus was performing signs. People were observing them. They were miraculous. They were instantaneous. They were unexplainable and they were undeniable. And because of this, John tells us that people were believing in Jesus. The Gospel of John, I feel like I'm taking some of the introduction to this book to to go through this. I didn't know you were coming through John. Marshall gave me a thumbs up, so that's good. This is the gospel of belief. And I think that's why I love this gospel so much. 98 times you will see the word believe found in this book. And it's the word that we find here in verse 23. The Greek is pastuo. Jesus performed signs and the people observed them. They believed in him. That is what John tells us here in verse 23. Pretty straightforward. But look at verse 24. But, transition, contrast. Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them. When you read this in the Greek, the word he is the first word of this sentence. It is emphatic, meaning the emphasis is on him, Jesus. They were believing in him, but he, however, was not believing in them. Guess what word John uses here? Belief. The same Greek word, pastuo. 
Literally, this translated is, many believed in Jesus, but Jesus did not believe in them. Jesus had no faith in their faith. It's astounding, isn't it? Well, why not? Well, because of what we see in the last part of verse 24, where John says, for he knew all men. R.V.G. Tasker, in his commentary on the Gospel of John, says, Jesus regarded all belief in him as superficial, which does not have as its most essential elements the consciousness of the need for forgiveness and the conviction that he alone is the mediator of that forgiveness. Their faith was shallow. It was superficial. It was disingenuous. And Jesus knew this because he was God, because he knew all men, and because he knew their hearts. When Jesus became a man, he did not stop being God. We see Jesus in the scripture as the God-man, right? What a great term. What a great theological term for us to know and to share with our children and our grandchildren, that Jesus was Fully God, fully man, or as R.C. Sproul liked to say, truly God and truly man. He's not 50-50. He's 100% God, 100% man. And I would argue, and I believe with all my heart, that Jesus was omniscient when he was on the earth. He did not lay aside this attribute during his earthly ministry. And we see several illustrations of this in Scripture, where Jesus knows what people are thinking when he knows what they are saying to themselves, and when he knows what others are reasoning in their hearts. And I'd like to show you a few of those examples in the gospel this morning from each of the three gospels. So three examples this morning, Marshall, not nine, but three. Okay? We're a little different that way. But I love you, brother. Turn to Matthew chapter 12. That was a little nugget I got last night. Matthew chapter 12. I remember, uh, just a side note, when I got to seminary, I came in, I started in January of 98 at Masters, and, and so one of the classes I jumped in on was Old Testament studies, so it was Old Testament 2. So they'd already had Old Testament 1. And I remember the first two or three days in that class, there were guys in my class that were asking questions. I didn't even know what their questions meant. I think Marshall would have been those guys, one of those guys, like not one of the guys I would hang out with during lunch, you know. <laughs> Too smart for me. But Matthew chapter 12, look with me, verses 22 to 25. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw. All the crowds were amazed, and they were saying, This man cannot be the son of David, can he? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, This man cast out demons only by Beelzebul, the, real, the ruler of the demons. Look what it says. And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. Jesus knew 
the thoughts of the Pharisees. Turn to Mark chapter 2. Very famous passage of scripture. Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. When he had come back to Capernaum several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even near the door. And he was speaking the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. And Jesus, seeing their face, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak this way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, Why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and pick up your pallet and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Get up, pick up your pallet and go home. And he got up and immediately picked up the pallet, and went out in the sight of everyone so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God saying, we have never seen anything like this. Again, Jesus seeing here that they were reasoning in their hearts. And then finally turn to Luke chapter 7 before we return to John chapter 2. Luke 7. And we'll, draw, we'll begin in, down in verse 36. Luke 7, verse 36. Now one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him, and he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house... She brought an alabaster vial of perfume and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner." Well, Jesus obviously knew what Simon was saying to himself as we read the rest of this account. Jesus proved himself to be a prophet, the very office that Simon was denying him of having. I love the irony. And it wasn't because Jesus was a great lip reader. It's because he knew all men. He was omniscient. Jesus, here in John chapter 2, you can go back there now, Jesus did not entrust himself to those who were believing in him. Their faith was not genuine. And he knew this. He could see this. They were believing him for the wrong reasons. Simply because of the signs, the miracles that he was performing. 
John continues in verse 25. He says, after saying in verse 24, for he knew all men and because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Friends, Jesus knew the hearts of men. Jesus knew what was in man. Jesus knew men were depraved, that they were dead in their sins, that they were deceptive, and that they were disingenuous. Jesus knew the hearts and motives and the intents of every person he ever came in contact with. Have you ever thought about that? Jesus knew that he would be arrested and crucified. Jesus knew that he would rise from the dead on the third day as he predicted his death and resurrection numerous times. Jesus knew that he would be arrested. Jesus knew that all of the disciples would fall away because of him. Jesus knew that it was Judas who would betray him when the other disciples did not know. Jesus knew and predicted that Peter would deny him and that Peter would deny him three times. Jesus knew all things and Jesus knew all men. He was omniscient while he was on the earth and he is omniscient today as he is in heaven. Amen. As he is seated at the right hand of the father. Jesus is God. He is omniscient. God is omniscient. And together they know everything about you and they know everything about me. Everything. He knows the number of hairs on your head, Luke 12, 7. He knows your needs before you even ask him, Matthew 6, 8. Have you ever prayed with someone that likes to inform God of things? Hey, God, today I was doing this, and they're like telling him things. Like, God doesn't need to know those things, right? He knows your needs. He knows everything about you before you even come to him in prayer. Jesus knows your thoughts. He knows your motives. He knows where you are struggling. He knows that you are hurting. And he knows things about you this morning that no one else in this room knows about you. Psalm 139. I'm sure this is true of of most pastors. When you get called to go to the hospital to pray with someone before a procedure or a surgery. Psalm 139 is always a scripture that I go to. It is so comforting to someone who is anxious, nervous, um, when you don't know what, what may be coming. So listen to verses 1 through 6. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. Verses 13 through 16. For you form my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. Do you know what else God knows about you and what God knows about me? 
He knows your faith. He knows about your belief in him, whether it is real and genuine or whether it is shallow and superficial and counterfeit. You cannot fool God ever. God cannot be fooled. There's a quote that is attributed to Abraham Lincoln that goes like this. You can fool all the people some of the time and some of the people all the time, but you cannot fool all the people all the time. Well, here's one for us today. You cannot fool God anytime. Friend, you can fool us. Perhaps on a Sunday morning, you can come in here as you come to church or as you go to home group, small group, care group, youth group. You can dress like a believer. You can sing like a believer. You can talk like a believer. We call it Christianese. You can recite the word like a believer. You can listen to the word like a believer. And you can nod your head and say amen like a believer would do. You can fool all of us in this body, perhaps 100% of the time. But you cannot fool God ever. Because God knows your heart. God knows your motives. God knows your thoughts. He knows what you do when no one else is looking. And so my question for us today would be this. When God looks at your life, what does he see? When God observes your faith, your belief, what does he see? I love the book of James. It's like the Proverbs in the New Testament, right? It's just full of wisdom So many times you read through James and they seem like disconnected thoughts, but it is so rich, so much treasure there. And in the book of James, James describes really three types of faith. One one type of faith is demonic faith, believing in God and believing in God alone. Believe that there is a God. And James tells us there that even the demons believe, right? And they shudder, they tremble. The second type of faith listed there is a dead faith. It's a faith without works. There's no substance to supporting your claim. And then the third type of faith that we all want to have is dynamic faith. Thank you, Warren Wiersbe, for that outline. That faith that produces works of righteousness. So what type of faith does God see when he looks at you and when he looks at me? Is it true faith? Is it genuine faith? Is it a faith that produces works? Is it a faith that manifests the fruits of the Spirit? Or is it a faith like those that Jesus observed in these people in Jerusalem during the Passover? Who, only, who had only believed because of the signs that Jesus was doing? Have you believed because it was the right thing to do? Because it was your duty as an American? Because you knew it would be pleasing to your parents? Or only because you didn't want to go to hell? You may say, hey, I'm saved by grace. And that you have placed faith in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins. But can you honestly say today, before Almighty God who knows all things, that you are his workmanship? That you have been created in Christ Jesus for good works. And your life is made up of those good works that God prepared for you to walk in. Now we all know we're saved by grace through faith. Christ alone, right? 
But clearly our works serve the one who did save us, right? Your works can't save you, but you do them in expression of worship because of the one who did save you. So what are we to do to be sure that I know Christ and Christ knows me? You prayed that earlier in your prayer, Marshall, not knowing what I was going to preach this morning. Well, the Bible would say, examine yourselves. Examine yourselves. 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Again, Paul writes to the Corinthians, to the church at Corinth, to believers. And he says, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourself, that Christ, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? Peter as well, 2 Peter 1.10, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. I always tell young people a good way to examine yourself to see if you are in the faith is, are you manifesting the fruits of the Spirit? Galatians 5.22-23, God gives those for us to, to see, do I have these in my life? Is there love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? Are all of those present in my life? It's not enough to say, well, I got five out of nine. It's pretty good. It's passing. Or seven out of nine. If you have been born again, if you have been saved from your sins, if you have done what John says in John 5, 24, if you have crossed over from death to life, if you have been indwelt by the Spirit of God, these fruits will be evident in your life. And these are some questions to ask as well as we think about this passage. Number one, do I love the things that God loves? Do I love the things that God loves? Number two, do I hate the things that God hates? Number three, do I have a love for the word of God? Number four, do I spend time in prayer talking with the Lord? Number five, do I love the church that Christ loved and gave himself for? And number six, do I love to be involved in good works? Another thing to do would be to pray and And here is a good prayer to pray, again from Psalm 139. Those last couple of verses, 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there be any hurtful way in me. And lead me in the everlasting way. These verses led a man named James Orr to write a hymn in 1936 entitled, Search Me, O God. And I just want to close with those lyrics. Search me, O God, and know my heart today. Try me, O Savior, know my thoughts, I pray. See if there be some wicked way in me. Cleanse me from every sin and set me free. I praise thee, Lord, for cleansing me from sin. Fulfill thy word and make me pure within. Fill me with fire where once I burned with shame. Grant my desire to magnify thy name. Lord, take my life and make it wholly thine. Fill my poor heart with thy great love divine. 
Take all my will, my passion, self, and pride. I now surrender, Lord, in me abide. O Holy Ghost, revival comes from thee. Send a revival, start the work in me. Thy word declares thou wilt supply our need. For blessings now, O Lord, I humbly plead. You believe in Jesus. Does Jesus believe in you? Let's pray. Father, it is amazing to think through these three verses. That you are a God that knows everything about us. Lord, you know our needs before we even ask. You know the number of hairs on our head. You are intimately acquainted with all of our ways. You know our thoughts, our motives. You know the things that we are going to do before, we're going, before we even do them. God, you even know our faith. You knew the faith of those here that were in Jerusalem at the Passover. Those who were believing, but were only believing because of the signs that you were doing. Lord, their faith was not genuine. It was counterfeit. And Lord, you were able to see right through them. And God, you can see into our hearts and you know where we stand. You can see our faith. And God, I pray as you look at every one of our hearts that you would see true faith, saving faith, genuine faith. That we would be people who believe in Jesus as the Son of God. That you are exactly who you said you were. That you are the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except you. That you, that there is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. Lord, that our faith would be in what you did on the cross. That you went to the cross as a perfect man. An unblemished lamb and gave your life for us. Your body was broken, your blood was shed so that we would be forgiven and have everlasting life. Lord, may all of our trust be in you, in the person of Christ and in your finished work. Lord, as Marshall prayed earlier, if there's just one here today that has never truly trusted in you, God, I pray that today might be the day of salvation for them. That God, you would be gracious to them as you have been gracious to me and so many others in this room that you would grant to them repentance from their sin and give them faith to believe in your son that their faith would be genuine and that that faith would lead to justification and a right relationship with a holy God through Jesus Christ our Lord. We pray these things in Jesus name. Amen.